0: In my view, movement towards negotiations and negotiations on peace need
1: to begin the next two months or so. Thirty years ago, the Berlin Wall fell, precipitating the collapse of political and economic boundaries in Europe. It's 2022 and another conflict is on Europe's doorstep. Two and a half thousand experts and leaders, including 50 heads of state and government, have gathered in the Swiss resort of Davos. Amid this spring weather, they're considering the serious question, is history at a turning point? At the World Economic Forum annual meeting, discussions and dialogue are around if a new iron curtain is dropping in Europe. I'm Mustafa al-Rawi, the Nationals Assistant Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. With me is Mina Al Arabi, the National's editor in chief, and CNN anchor Julia Chatterley. Mina, we're in Davos. We're on location, been listening for the last few days to experts and leaders. The geopolitics with the Ukraine war, the food crisis, inflation. What stuck out most for you?
2: So, as the World Economic Forum's annual meeting comes to a close for the year 2022. It really was a point of inflection for many people about globalization. Now, those who come to the World Economic Forum often think of globalization as a very good thing and think of themselves as global citizens. However, globalization for the past few years has taken a hit. Um, And perhaps mostly with COVID-19, we had barriers going up in countries in a way that we never would imagine. Everybody was grounded. Most of the people who attend the annual meeting are jet-setting one place or the other, and suddenly they were grounded. And in addition to that, you've had supply chain problems that really raised uh, the the thinking about self-efficiency or self-sufficiency amongst countries and thinking about shorter supply chains. So this whole globalization model started to be questioned in a different way. And then, of course, the Ukraine war came about. And the, since the invasion, a real sense of, we, you know, can you suddenly have a hold on the global financial system, cut Russia out from everything from SWIFT and and oil sanctions and so forth. And so all of that came to the fore here. But in my mind, the theme is the global order, globalization, where do we go? What's been interesting is seeing that it's a very European centric annual meeting. And usually Europe was the one that was kind of stable. And, you know, if anything, they talk about climate change or future of work. But it was never the geopolitics. The geopolitics is all the other parts of the world, including our part of the world, the Middle East, which was hardly present here. So it's really also about the future of Europe.
1: And Julia, how how much of a watershed moment is this from your point of view?
0: For me, this Davos was about choices and consequences in a way that I don't think I've seen before. And I completely agree about the the orientation of it being about Europe. But some of that, of course, is about the legacy of COVID and the fact that the ability to travel here geopolitically or otherwise, for countries in China and Southeast Asia, for example, is just that much more complicated this time around. But I think in terms of the policy decisions that European leaders are making at this moment, for many decades, and it ties to what the IMF chief said coming into this about the global economy being the most challenged in a way since the Second World War, it's the confluence of morality, ethics, economics, And the intersection of that in the choices that they're making and the short term decision making having massive potential long term impact, be it on food security, be it on climate change. And to the point about the the sort of consequences and the dangers, perhaps, of making short term decisions that benefit you now ramping up lng for example because you're desperately trying to get away from russian oil for the germans um what does that mean for the longer term consequences not just for yourself but for the globe on food security on the climate so we've had this argument and this debate about globalization we've never felt globalization in the way certainly in our lifetimes i think um than we have at this davos Talking about the intersection of all of these things and the consequences for them and decisions being made in Europe over energy mix, food security, inflation and the ripple effect around the world. So um, coming into this meeting, it was funny. The German finance minister said to me, remember in Germany, it took us two decades to build an airport in Berlin. And in the space of one year, we're going to change our entire energy complex. And then I have uh, the CEO of Volkswagen, one of the titans of industry there, and he's like, yes, you know, we're making some really interesting decisions at this moment, for better or worse. It was interesting because the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, gave the
2: closing remarks um, for the World Economics Forum meeting. And his focus about we're going to reorient our economy, we're going to brief the private sector about this. And everyone's like, hold on, like, I'm not sure the private sector is actually ready for this. So I think it's a really good point about the choices that are being made, perhaps some short sight in this, but also what is the long-term plan? But the other big one, of course, was climate and the discussion here on climate. Yeah. Everyone's like, we shouldn't lose sight of the needs um, to get to um, you know, carbon neutrality, which again, Olaf Schultz said, actually what's happened with Russia is going to incentivize us to work even quicker on renewables
0: but there's a wish and there's a reality absolutely and this is as they're throwing huge amounts of money buying floating lng terminals and it's like okay well that's sort of on the dirtier side of energy rather than the cleaner that you're hoping for so we're sort of going on a massive detour for political reasons and you know i think one of the stand-up moments for me was i did the food security panel i bring it back to that because I sort of miss this part of the game, whether it's climate change and your ability to tackle one thing and it having an impact on another. Our food systems create a third of our greenhouse gases. You shouldn't have a climate goal unless you have a a food system plan of attack, because you can address one crisis by tackling another. And for me, this was about connecting those kind of dots. Um, But I did get a sense that the decisions that are being made by policymakers, perhaps, in their sort of alarmist... We've got massive crises going on. For business, they've still got to report every three months and they've still got to make short-term investment decisions. So we have big things going on at the policymaking level and, and businesses like, okay, well, we'll sort of continue to try and run our businesses and and do our thing and, and hope for the best that we're sort of going in the right direction politically.
2: But Mustafa, you covered this new expansion of the alliance of private business on climate? The
1: first mover on uh, for net zero. So... It went to 55 of the world's largest companies, uh, covering trillions of dollars worth of GDP. And essentially, what they were saying was they are willing to make their supply chain much more um, uh, sustainable, willing to make decisions on procurement where it, you know, if they had the choice between A or B, whichever one was more sustainable, they would they would take. So that was that was there was a big lineup for that meeting.
0: And why? Why are they doing that? Is that because suddenly? And again, this was sort of a message that came out for me. For me, there was a, there's a sort of break point here where they realize they've got no choice because when you look at the inflation, energy price inflation, food price inflation, whatever it is, suddenly all these sustainability decisions that were nice and fluffy and friendly and, and worked well for shareholders and workers suddenly became part of the risk profile of a business. You cannot operate a business today until you incorporate massive, massive risk. And for many of these business leaders in particular, They've never experienced inflation like this. This is suddenly intrinsic to running a business. Sustainability and your choices are intrinsic to running a business in a way that we've not seen again in well, it's our lives. It's, it's
1: a good point you make about you know why are they doing it now, and they so have to. they have to. And but also I think there is a, a a positive undercurrent. It isn't it isn't just we have to or it's cynical. It's a PR move. I think they genuinely want to be part of the solution. And when there are multiple crises playing out in the world as it is now, it's so complex. If, for example, this platform, the first move of World Economic Forum, or there was a health alliance announced by Pfizer and Bill Gates and John Kerry, and if that's a solution, something to help things, I think people are jumping at it. And that there's definitely the sense I had this week that, you know, in such a difficult world, if we can be part of the solution, we really want to be that guy.
0: Or the whole thing's going off the rails.
1: Yes, but I mean, but also, I mean, if I bring it back to geopolitics, yeah. the start of the meeting with uh, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he's very much talking in a binary world. You know, it's, it's a moral decision what you do about Ukraine. It's understandable. But the message he came with was, you know, we're, we're going to be open for business. Help us reconstruct the country.
2: It was fascinating listening also to the foreign minister of Ukraine saying, it's black and white, there is no gray. And okay, I understand, but at the same time, you know, those of us who remember history, 20 years ago was the Iraq War. And nobody was saying black and white. Nobody was saying you're with us or against us, even though there was an invasion that broke international law. And I was shocked by the amount of people here that kept talking about the international order and the rule book and the need to respect the laws that were put in place since the establishment of the UN. And not one person that I spoke to from the Western world even remembered the Iraq war. And when you raised it, like, yeah, but, and it's like, no, it's no but. It's a trumped-up threat, didn't exist, where the US didn't go to the UN, went in and invaded the country. And it was, it was shocking how, again, I say very Eurocentric, which I understand because the crisis is now, no mention of Afghanistan, and no mention of have any lessons been learned. And I think this is one of the things that really worried me, because while people are thinking about things on the business side and thinking long-term, on the geopolitics is even worse than usual, where people are very much in the minute and not thinking how's the rest of the world thinking. And and so that's where I felt like there was the Euro U- European view. There was hardly an American view. The sector of commerce was here and we heard from some of the members of Congress, but there wasn't the same kind of, and of course John Kerry, but there wasn't the same usual, you know, American presence here. And so it was very much the European speaking on one side and the rest of the world's like, we understand and it's bad and we don't agree with the Russian invasion, but please don't think that you have the moral ground that you would like to believe you have. And
0: I think that's where I saw a difference of opinion really coming out when you dug deep into the geopolitical discussion. I mean, I can take that a million different ways. The German economy minister said when I was tackling him about continuing to pay for, for Russian gas, and I said to him, you know, how does it feel on a moral basis to in some way providing money that is and can be used to finance this war? And he said, look, you know, we we had discussions with the Americans and they said, look, we're going to ban we're going to ban oil, but but you can't because the whole world can't afford to pay the prices but for energy that will happen if, if you ban oil. And he's like, okay. And actually that goes back to almost full circle to where we started about the choices and the consequences. To your point about the Ukrainian president, and he was taking the same line as he always has done, maximum sanctions coming into this. And then we had the NATO Secretary General come and say freedom before free trade. And one of the CEOs that I spoke to was talking about the the pressure that he's come under because he's continuing the Syngenta CEO to trade with with Russia. And he was like, which war are we fighting here? Because there's a war here on food security and there's a war going on in Ukraine. And if we continue like this and we self-sanction the agricultural sector in Russia as a specific example, the world will not have, enough food. It already doesn't. It will have a worse situation. We can't survive without Russian fertilizer. So there almost has to be carve-outs in certain sectors in order to protect or at least fight arguably a bigger war in terms of people, which is food insecurity in the world. So it goes back to the short-term choices that you make and the far bigger not to take away the, the devastation but to your point, we've we've been here in other situations in many times, and the repercussions and the spillover effects can be vast. I mean,
1: what, Mina, what did you think of the the kind of dialogue that came out about conceding Ukrainian land for peace with the Russians, and what Henry Kissinger was saying, which caused you know a, a diplomatic incident essentially?
2: Right. I mean, Henry Kissinger, of course, is. Um, Quite often, a polarizing figure outside of the US. And in the US, it's always interesting. Like, former officials always end up getting this respectful positioning, regardless of what they've done in their lives, which is interesting. So, Henry Kissinger has this kind of like aura in Davos because, you know, he's seen as this elderly statesman. And I think he was, he was speaking realpolitik. And he said, eventually, something's going to happen to have to end this war. Now, of course, I completely understand for the Ukrainians who are out there fighting and mm. losing and losing their people. Mm. Like you don't get to say that on a public stage and that becomes a headline. Even if you admit it behind closed doors, and I'm sure the Ukrainians themselves are looking at all the scenarios of what can they negotiate away or not. But when you say it on the world stage from somebody that that's revered, so to speak, it becomes it becomes a framework that people start talking about. Well, if even Henry Kissinger said that, maybe that's what we need to do. And he's not the first person to say it, but he's the first person to say it on such a big
0: podium. He's not afraid to have tough conversations and say things that are awkward, tough, unbearable to hear in difficult situations. But it's a really important one. I mean, some of the conversations I was having, not on air, behind the scenes, was you know, we're heading into a European summer. How long can we continue to talk about the Ukraine war on a daily basis? And when does the fatigue set in, wherever you are in the world? And not just the fatigue about talking about war, because it's not about a lack of care. But at the same time, most countries in the world are having to make tough choices. Energy prices are rising. Food prices are rising. Double-digit inflation. Your people are turning around to your leaders and going, guys, what are you doing? The consequences, the global consequences of a a war in in part of the world mean that policymakers have to make decisions and do Ultimately, they all turn around and go, "Um, we hate to break it to you, Ukraine, but um, we can and need the war to end. So, do we capitulate to an aggressive power for the greater good? And it's a horrible, desperate thing to say when people are fighting for their existence in a part of the world. But it's certainly being discussed behind the scenes, if not in front, to your point.
2: Uh, But I think capitulation is also, I mean, that's the problem. They've put in so much emotion and drama in this that any sort of kind of negotiation is seen as capitulation. And that's why, again, the Ukrainians keep saying it's black and white. It's like it's not black and white. We wish it was black and white. It isn't black and white. And that's one of the problems that they've carved this narrative now, that any talk of how do we find a way out. It was interesting because you did have some American Republicans who are here talking about what's the off-ramp for Putin, can we talk about, and you found that a lot of the Europeans were like, we don't want to discuss it just yet, but it it is an interesting dynamic. I will say, um, I mean, you spoke about European summer, everybody I spoke to, both Europeans and non-Europeans, were talking about European winter. Now, they're worried in some ways that that's when energy prices will really hit. And, you know, business leaders you're speaking to, ministers speaking to in sessions, closed door sessions where they were saying, OK, we really have to look at the, the immediate near term uh, crisis that, that higher energy prices. However, they're simultaneously saying when winter sets, does the fighting then ease off? And this is back to the idea that when winter sets, then they have to find a solution. And of course, that comes with November being the G20 summit. So the next big international meeting, of course, is going to be the UN General Assembly in September. I don't think we'll get any traction there. It'll be the same thing. But the G20 summit and the Indonesians were here very present, speaking behind closed doors again to different, because business has become one of the, the verticals for the G20. But speaking about and saying, what can we do in Indonesia that can help tackle
0: globalization and the role of the G20? But also, of course, the Russia-Ukraine dynamic. I've just realized we haven't used the R word at all. And I think perhaps one of the catalysts for that will be do we or do we not have a global recession and what's going on right now? Because part of the the discussion that's that's taken place here is the relative resilience of the consumer, particularly in the West. Why? And certainly my sense, and I could be entirely wrong, is that we've come out for the most part of of COVID. And irrespective of pricing and the challenges, people are like, just get me out there. Let me go traveling. Let me do this. I want to spend some money. We've got a buildup of savings. certainly in the Western part of the world, and people are spending it. So we've got this potentially artificial cushioning effect to a global slowdown. If we start to see that peter out, particularly if China's still, not mentioned China really either, if the economics there continue to be tough with with COVID, you don't have any ballast. You've got a slowing Western world, still challenges with, with restrictions in Southeast Asia, China potentially too if we start to go into a global recessionary environment, that pressure for some kind of compromise rises. But one of the things I was
2: hearing is that actually you might have some countries go into recession and others not. And when we look at the Middle East region, Mm. that's in a very different position. The other surprising thing that I heard here, which I kind of knew, but I hadn't put together. And that's one of the strengths of being at Davos, is that you start seeing the dots all get connected is that there's full employment in the U.S. There are a number of countries where they can't find enough people to hire, including the U.K. You don't have that issue in the Middle East, for example, where our unemployment rates are anything between 8 to 20%, depending on you know, the country that you're looking at, um, of, of young people. And so if, again, there's there's full employment, so there's spending power, but at the same time, soon companies and economies will start to suffer from not having enough people to do the jobs they need them to do. And on the flip side, and again, if globalization worked, you would have countries that have abundant labor and unemployment and countries that need labor to fill those roles, you'd actually get them to work. But
0: the geopolitics, of course, gets in the way. Oh, my goodness. This is a whole nother podcast. (laughs) So I couldn't agree more with you. And we are going into a 10 to 20 year period where there simply aren't enough workers. So in my view, that the power is going to shift further and further towards the worker just for in certain parts of the world, scarcity issues. And oh, boy, does Europe have a problem. With that, the United States has got a huge problem. And actually, I, I've thought about this a lot over the past few weeks, actually, and I think um, it's going to bring us back to technology and all the things that we, we tried to talk about Davos but got overshadowed here And the use of technology. We're going to go and have gone from a conversation where uh, technology robots is going to steal our jobs to it being an absolute necessity to make us more productive because we simply aren't going to have enough people in the right roles doing the things we need. Um That's still to come.
1: We're gonna have to leave it there.
0: Oh, we're just getting warmed up.
1: Julia Chatley, thank you so much. (laughs) Mina Al Arabi, thank you.
2: Thank you, Mustafa. But before I wrap up, I wanna know from you what was your Davos moment? Yes.
1: My Davos moment? Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh god, that's a tough one. I mean, it's I've enjoyed this week. I think it's been very, very dynamic and interesting and perhaps not as depressing as the headlines would would make you Mm. assume. Like I said, my moment was realizing in that meeting. Well, that press conference with bill gates and john kerry and brad smith and mark benioff and these big names that they actually are trying to do something and that was that felt good for me for my kids for everyone
0: julia your davos moment a moment of um humor i think i mentioned him already the volkswagen ceo they're ramping up electric cars so they're another company that's like you know we've got to focus on the future and he's obviously made this target to take over elon musk and tesla by 2025 but of course tesla's doing really well and i said to him you know could give a message to to Elon Musk. And he looked into the, the camera and he was like, hi, Elon, we're coming to get you. <laughs> I was like, so to your point, it's not as doom and gloom as it feels like. And everyone's still getting to work and doing the things. And in this case, it's a, it's a green thing. It's a good thing. And Mina, you? I had several Davos
2: moments, but I'll have to say my Davos moment was when I heard the Saudi Minister of Planning and Economy respond to me saying, you know, we were talking and I said to him, well, you know, all prices are up, the whole climate agenda's off. And he looked at me, he goes, absolutely not. And the way that he's reacted, whereas five years ago, for a lot of, the, you know, the Arab ministers, it would be like, yeah, this is a secondary issue. Whereas now it's front and center. And it felt, you know, I moderated a session on the green transition in the Middle East and, and it, the depth and breadth at which officials could speak to what they were doing in their home countries. In the Gulf would not have existed a few years ago. And so that was great. Can I say one more thing? Yes.
0: I've not fallen over all week. Okay, I'm so much no more productive snow. because I'm not no slipping snow. and sliding around. Hard luck. This is it. One time only. We're back here in January. Yeah, we want to be yeah. back. We want to be back, back in, in the, the snow. snow. I want yeah. the snow. Yeah. We do you? All do. Yes. You want the snow? Wow. You're hardcore,
1: the two of you. Well, thank you both. This has been Beyond the Headlines in Davos. Thank you for joining us.